Hi out there, rock and roll fans, and welcome to another episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded just off Abbey Road here in London. And to give you a little background about us, myself, Mac B. the Wolf, and Action Jackson are old friends who met in college and have this mutual not only love of rock and roll, but an insatiable thirst for the knowledge, the nitpicky little details about how things recorded, which albums were recorded before each, who wrote the songs, who played on every single one of them, which tours did better, any kind of minutia about rock and roll and its history we want to know about. It's something we share, and it's something that we find it hard to share with, let's say, our wives and other friends in our universe. So we lived together in the 90s, we grew apart and didn't stay in touch because we're not exactly Mr. Social Media, but we've come back together and we found that we still have this great, great love of rock and roll that we love to share. And we have hundreds, maybe thousands of conversations that we didn't get to have together over the years. So that's what this podcast is really all about, giving us a chance to revisit some things that we used to love and to get caught up on things that we've learned separately over the past decades. And today... We're talking about the Rolling Stones' Steel Wheels, the 1989 comeback record that brought them back on the scene in a major way. They had not toured since the early 80s, and they put out a couple albums in the mid-80s that weren't great. They weren't classics. They didn't do that well. So in a way, it was a make-or-break album for them. And it was huge. The media blitz on MTV and on rock radio and rock publications like Rolling Stone The Stones were everywhere. And thanks to a little reminiscing and nostalgia in the late 80s about things like Woodstock and things that had taken place 20 years ago, old school rock and roll was very much back in vogue. And this album, Steel Wheels, hit the bullseye for the culture at the right time and sparked an enormous tour and got a lot of kids my age, I was 16 at the time, who had missed out on the Stones in the 60s and 70s, a chance to catch up, learn more about them, and get excited about what would be your Rolling Stones album. So sit back and relax. Action and Jackson and I dive into Steel Wheels here on The Wolf. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
So Steel Wheels, man, we get to go back and visit something we were intimately familiar with and super psyched about at the time. Yeah, this this record was, at least growing up in the greater New York area, was massive. Massive. They had this huge media blitz with WNEW out of New York City, which was a huge rock radio mm-hmm. channel. Uh, Scott Muni was the big anchor uh, DJ. You know, he they called him by the first name when they did the press conference. Oh, hey, Scott, how you doing? Mm. I'm sure that was a big, you know, feather in his cap. But yeah, it was all over the place. And let's start at the beginning here. This was a this this was a big deal for the Stones. This was a comeback album. This was a make or break. It sounds weird to say that about the Rolling Stones, but they had not toured since 1981. I mean, this this was a big. Either they were going to make it big on this thing, have a big comeback, or it was just going to kind of fall flat. And they were going to be. I don't know what they would have done after this. Maybe it's just been a kind of a greatest hits deal. Well, and the fact of the matter is, both Mick and Keith had finally done solo tours. Mick had had a couple of solo records. He did She's the Boss in the early 80s, and then he did Primitive Cool a couple of years before Steel Wheels. And then Keith went out, of course, did Talk Was Cheap, and did the killer live album. He did a tour with the, him and the expensive winos, and did a killer tour, and he has the, the live from the Palladium that we wore out back in the day. Correct. You know, and, and they did both go on to do decent solo albums after Steel Wheels and after the Steel Wheels tour, but you're right, they hadn't toured in a while. Their last two records, Undercover and Dirty Work, were not their best, although there are a couple good songs off of them. They didn't really hit home. They weren't fitting in with, obviously, the, the techno stuff in the early 80s and now getting into the harder, and, you know, independent stuff of, of the mid-80s, right? Uh, and so, yeah, it was time to say, okay, we're going to come together and do this, and we're going to do it right. We're going to do a tour, and if right. it doesn't work out, and, and if it's if it's the last one, then great. We'll go out and do the last big one. If it doesn't work, then we can all kind of do our thing. But obviously it did work, and they were given the ability to then continue to do it forever now. We still do it. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think they, they, I think they knew that. I mean, they went to, they went to Montserrat to the Air Studios there, mm-hmm. which is not the worst place to be. But I think they did it to kind of sequester themselves. They get everybody back together. I don't know what Bill Wyman's thoughts were at this point in time. I don't know whether he was thinking about leaving and they got him back for this. But they needed the whole band right. back together. Mm-hmm. Needed it. Laid it down. I, I heard a story. Somebody was telling a story about how they, they went there because they wanted zero distraction. They didn't want anybody saying, oh, well, you know, so-and-so's in town, and I'm mm-hmm. going to meet with, you know, Eric Clapton. No, forget it. We're all in the studio. If you're not recording, you're hanging out, playing pool or whatever, but we're all here together to, to do this thing as a band. Yeah, and uh, look, it, it worked. I So I've obviously listened to it, re-listened to it before we do the show here, and I've forgotten how good it was. I, I I kind of took it for granted, like, okay, that was that Stones album, because at that time, I didn't know the Stones catalog super deeply. I didn't know the stuff from the 70s deeply at all. I knew the hits, but that was about it. So I knew Hot Rocks very well, and Hot Rocks is big in America. If you grew up in the 80s and you like rock and roll, you had a cassette, you know, probably a, a dubbed one, but, 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 you know, you had a cassette... <laughs> Like I did, my buddy Jordan got the CDs and I dubbed it from him. And I still had that tape and I wore it out because it had everything from, you know, 63 to, to 71 on it. All the classics. Some of them are the real classic stones, you know. And, and we knew the Let It Bleed album pretty well in college. But but that was it. So, I mean, I, eventually I got into 
exile on main street and i got into sticky fingers more and you know some girls and yeah and i was i was <laughs> in the same boat too you know it was kind of like the stones yeah they're old man they they were around for a million years like it's like the beatles what's going on here and yeah i mean to your point the last couple albums you know did, eh, i kind of remembered uh some of the stuff from dirty work that was on mtv they had harlem shuffle and they had one hit to the body but yeah, even that had been a couple of years. What was that? Eighty six. Right. They put that out, so it was like, eh. so again, they needed to come back big, hit it big, punch you in the face, and then embark on this massive world tour. And then they did it, yeah. And they really changed the game of touring, really, for big bands. I mean, I guess Pink Floyd was kind of doing it also at the same time, or you know, had a little bit of a head start thanks to the Delicate Sound of Thunder tour, which we went into heavy on episode three but yeah now they they figured out how you do you have two different crews in two different stages and you get a big corporate sponsor like Budweiser it's not selling out it's make sure that you get paid and you don't lose your butt on the funding an enormous tour like this well it's pretty cool because I mean they never like Mick and Keith nobody had to say hey you know you need to relax have a Budweiser like it was none of that all you need to do is stand in front of the Budweiser logo which is 30 feet tall and you get paid. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, when we get word, when all we'd had was this beat up old tape of hot rocks, you know, listen to as tears go by and stuff like that off of there. And then suddenly, Hey, now there's a new one now, you know, and they're going to be on MTV, which when I was 15, 16, when this came out, MTV was, was pretty big still back then big to me and still played videos you know by bands uh, rock and roll bands and, and people who write their music and play their instruments right a little different than it is today but so it was huge and you know they came to town they came to louisville obviously you know you could have seen them in the greater new york did you see them in giant stadium giant stadium yes and it was one of those deals where it was like you know oh i don't know should we go should we not go and then, of course, they they announced the tour, and in 78 seconds, all the shows sell out. Okay, well, I guess we're not going to go. And then, oh, turns out they've added more shows. So, yeah, well, I think we, we got tickets to the last show that they played at Giant Stadium, or second to last, or whatever. And in row, you know, Triple Z, <laughs> up in the top, the show was so massive that it didn't it didn't really matter. Like, no, I couldn't see the really the band. They looked like ants. The show itself was so massive that it almost didn't matter. You almost didn't want to be front row for that because you couldn't take it all in. It was like right. a, you know, one of those like seventies Kiss shows where it was like, I can't, can't. You have to be farther back to enjoy it. No, it'd be like front row of the IMAX. Like, you don't want to be way down yeah. there, man. You, you got to back up or else you don't. You're gonna miss it. Yeah, correct. Going back to the beginning, I just remember even before it hit, they had this media blitz. It was everywhere. It was in the paper. It was on the radio. It was on TV. Uh, I think MTV had a big it rollout for it. All the guys were back. You know, they had. It wasn't just Mick and Keith doing the press conference. It was everybody. Right. You know, even Charlie Watts, who <laughs> he doesn't want to do that stuff. No, but you know what? You're gonna. <laughs> I don't care. Get out of here. And let's go. Yeah, everywhere. Rolling Stone was all over it. I mean, it was it was everywhere. It was the biggest deal there was, you know. And, and it came out the end of the summer of '89, going into my junior year. Yeah, and so I was driving then. I remember I had a soccer game that night, and then we drove to the show afterwards. Like, you know, go do your game. Lost the game actually. Coach knew that my mind was elsewhere that day. That's why you know. <laughs> I may have let some people score, you know, and, and we were not victorious, but, it, you know, I don't really remember who we played that day, but I remember the Stone show pretty vividly, and it was it was pretty fun. Yeah, and I just remember, too, in, in all the media blitz and everything, like these, again, you know, just kind of the, the hot rocks deal, but these dudes just looked like rock stars. Mm -hmm. Like they were, they dressed to the nines. 
you know, they had the they had the British accent. Everybody knew them, and everybody, at least in New York City, could not fawn over them enough. Even they knew, like they couldn't wait for the Stones to be back, the classic rock people, mm-hmm. and it was just insane. And they weren't that old then. In retrospect, I mean, rock and roll had not been uh, around that long in 1989. You know, a little more than 30 years, um, not 40 years yet, and a lot of the older. The original originals, like the Elvises and a lot of those guys had had moved on. So by the late 80s, they're like, well, you know, how much longer can this rock and roll thing go on? How long can you really do it? Uh, Because I've been saying for years, no, once you're 30, you can't do it. And then, okay, well, once you're 40, you really can't do it, right? But you're right. Uh, And and they look, they go great. Now, look, I've got the, I'm watching the DVD here, the Steel Wheels Live Deluxe DVD. And they did a big show few shows in Atlantic City. I'm watching them and, you know, yeah, they, they still play. Keith it doesn't play as much anymore. But back then he was really jamming still. And he didn't always sound great, but it was still just vintage Keith Richards. Like, you want to put one of these in your collection. This, this was good stuff. 89 Stones. Yeah, I think it was... They were re-energized, and yeah, that was a great show. Again, trying to trying to show the world that yeah, they were not dead, they were not obsolete or irrelevant. They were back, and would have a hard time believing that. I mean, Pink Floyd was a huge tour. This, I don't know, sales or whatever or dates, but I mean, this is right up there with a massive world tour. Oh, and yeah. yeah, they sounded great. They said everybody was playing great. Everybody was focused, and it was fantastic. 27 songs was their average. 27 songs a night, and they did mix it up. Not every night, you know. I mean, Keith has his two songs, and he would kind of rotate those around. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's a ton. I mean, now they play like 18 songs or something like that. Uh, but, yeah. but back then, I mean, it was a long show. It was a big show. They built a massive stage. And there's there's 15 of them on stage, right? Between the three backup singers, the two different keyboardists, including Chuck Lavelle, they got the horns players in there, you know, and five of them. I mean, you better be able to make a lot of noise with all those people, but you kind of have to because you're playing a football stadium and the stage takes up the entire end zone and then some. Uh, right? I mean, it was it was massive. Right, right. And they did have, it was cool because at, at the, on the Atlantic City show, and I think they did it a couple more times, you know, maybe in New York and maybe in Miami, you know, Eric Clapton comes out, mm-hmm. who back then was pretty huge himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then John Lee Hooker, who's always, you know, he's always cool to see. He's right. the coolest. All right, so let's hit the album then. Let, let's, I mean... Let's walk through it a little bit because, look, it's it's not Exile on Main Street. I'm not claiming that, you know. I'm, I'm not claiming it's one of those McTaylor's years. After Tattoo You, it is, I believe, the best Stones album. Correct. Yes, yeah, start to finish, yes. I think after Tattoo You, you know, you had Undercover, you had Dirty Work. I think probably at that point in time, things were getting a little, you know, are we still doing this, blah, blah, blah. And then, yes, this was the comeback. I think everybody sounds great on this record. I mean, you're right. The the tracks in the Rolling Stones catalog are they the best? But in 1989, after those two records, they were all fantastic. It was high energy. It was it was great playing. It was yeah. In like the first track, sad, sad, sad. I could have sworn this was a single, but it was not. But they played the they played this all the time on the radio. I thought the same thing, Jackson. I'm like, Sad, Sad, Sad wasn't a single. I would have sworn I remember playing Sad, Sad, Sad. Or maybe they had a video on MTV and I saw that a lot. I I don't know. But yeah, even though the, 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 the title Sad, Sad, Sad is a bit of a downer, 
The music isn't. The chords are very open, upbeat. It's positive, and it's a great way to start off the album. Yeah, you know, real strong starter. You know, you sit, if you've never heard it before, you put, oh, okay, you know, here we go. We're getting right into it. We're starting off in maybe third gear. It's nice. Not real long, three minutes and 35 seconds, but it does the job. Yeah, no, and honestly, I mean, the horns are, are nice in it, and obviously when you've got a horn section you're going to tour with, why not throw them in there? But I'd like to hear it without the horns, just as kind of a pure rock song and, and see how that sounds because i mean yeah it's it's tight and it's it's a little short but it's it's great it's 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 a, it's a great way to open the record and then straight into mixed emotions which obviously was the big opening single opening video off of the Correct. record sometimes referred to by other people in the band as mixed emotions <laughs> but that's fine yeah no that's it's a it's a cool song they've got some really cool harmonies on it and i know there's a there's a cool i don't know if this actually happened but there's a cool shot in the video of everybody standing around one microphone mm-hmm. including i think maybe steve jordan is there yeah also he wrote uh, almost hear you sigh with him yeah and i know he worked with keith he will he was one of the winos so that's big, right. yeah keith richard's buddy and yeah i just love that you know singing harmony everybody around one microphone did they really use that as a take probably not but it looks cool yeah and it looks like everybody and that was the other thing too is they were they showed them in the studio you know hanging out and it was just a cool it's a cool rock video it was yeah and then i think getting ready for for a tour you know uh, and obviously later songs later videos they released were off of the tour because the album came out and the mixed emotions probably came out in the summer and then the album came out later in the summer and then they boom right on tour in September and October. So they can get footage, live footage pretty quickly and they have to kind of film it every night because they have to put faces up on screens and stuff like that. So it may not be quite what the Atlantic city thing was, but, but there's film for most every night. So there's ways to get, and not to mention there's cameras all over them all the time. Anyway, it's like their whole lives are filmed when they're in the Rolling Stones. That's just kind of part of the deal backstage on stage whatever they had a movie come out or a documentary about exile on main street a couple years ago and i keith said i don't even remember them filming i don't (laughs) there was obviously there was a camera crew i don't remember them so you're right i think when they're doing their thing there's always somebody there with the camera yeah we watched that video 25 by 5 over and over and over right on the rolling stones vhs cassette on the history of the stones but i remember we got to see mick and keith working on the chords to mixed emotions um uh, and like yeah they really are writing together that's that's really how it happens right there Mm -hmm. i thought yeah that's that's really cool from a songwriting and from a longevity period look at it they are the greatest rock and roll band ever to have survived for so long and still be relevant. I mean, we're recording this in 2021 mm-hmm. and they cut a sh- they cut a stadium tour short in 2020. Still playing giant stadiums sold out in 2020 is insane. Anybody else from I mean, I know that technically they were a British invasion band other than the Beatles. They're the biggest thing to ever come out of England. I mean, just yeah, easily insane. Well, I, so, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, because you know Zeppelin maybe could have continued to do it, but they did not. Um, correct. Yeah. So no, you, you have to say the Stones mm-hmm. because they are kind of up there with the Beatles from the founding fathers' standpoint, and then from the standpoint of getting out there and working and continue to do it and, and to still be relevant, not to be like, oh yeah, you know the Stones are coming around. They play a couple songs like no, like people like you know back to back to Steel Wheels. People were excited about Steel Wheels. People were fans of this record and would go to see like you and I mm-hmm. go to see the show because we knew that, and then kind of work it backwards to to get into the band more. This this was a this was I mean I think they sold what two million copies. Of this record? Yeah, it was a big comeback States. for him, yeah. I mean, 
this this was a this was a standalone legitimate piece of recording, I guess is what I can say. <laughs> this is I mean, the more I thought you brought this up and the more I thought about it, the more I got into this about how they, I didn't I kind of forgot how big this record was for me. I know, I know. I started listening to like, <laughs> oh that's so good. And the third song, Terrifying. I'm like, yes, yeah. that was and that was a weird one. It's like that's kind of an off one, you know? That's like it sounds like one of their seventy ones. But I like that one a lot. Well, and the other thing too is what I kind of forgot about a little bit, and then in listening to this, Bill Wyman does not get enough credit as a bass player. Same here, man. It's the same. He lays down a groove in there. You're like, oh man, Bill Wyman is awesome. What is the deal with all this? But again, when you have Mick and Keith in the band, it's kind of easy. And Wyman was never, he was one of those guys like Steve Hackett. Like you talk to him and you'd never know. Like this dude's in the Rolling Stones. No way. He's, you know, he's like a gentleman. <laughs> but he's awesome. No, down there, laying down the groove. He's awesome. He, on Sad, 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 he's all over. In, in all these songs, like you can really hear Wyman. He's doing something. Yeah. He's not, and he's not drown out in the mix. He's right up where he should be. He sounds yes. really good. I'm like, yeah, he, he did have something to do with the Rolling Stones all those years. Although, you know, watching this video, you know, he does not add much visually. He just kind of stands there and plays his bass and, and maybe shifts to one side or another from time to time. You know, meanwhile, Mick's running all over the place. Keith's out doing his thing. Ronnie's peacocking around. And uh, and Bill is literally just standing there the whole time, just checking out girls in the audience. It's basically it's what I hear. That's what he does. Or that's what he did. There's a great, there's a great shot of him in still life where they do, it's like, I don't know, it's like the third song or something. And they take, they take a break and mix jump. He's again, Oh, so great to see you, Bubba. We love you. And you see Bill Wyman just stand there and he just casually reaches into his pocket, casually pulls out a Marlboro, just lights it up. And he's just, you know, he's just, okay, let me know when to play again. In front of 80,000 people or whatever. Yeah. He's, he's, I think he described himself as, you know, the local mortician, just, you know, real understated, but yeah, just a fantastic player. And I think, I think, I think, I think he was one of the guys that came up with the fretless bass idea. And he could, I mean, either one of the pioneers or maybe have made it up is what I thought I read somewhere. So definitely an underrated player. And he was older than the other guys too. I mean, like seven or eight years older, right? So when they're, oh, the Stones are 19 or these sensations. Well, he's 26 and like has been married and maybe even divorced from that point. I don't know. Had a kid. Like, oh, well, the Stones are so old. Mick and Keith are 43, 44 years old. That's awfully old for a rock star. Wyman was already 50 at that point. Correct. Correct. And that's why I think, I mean, I don't know, maybe they had to coax him back in a little bit. I know this was the end for him. He did the record, he did the tour, and then that, and then he was gone. Did not come back for Voodoo Lounge. And so I don't know whether they had to get him back in there, but he, he did he did what he had to, and he played fantastic on this record. He really did. He really did. And, and they do a lot of bluesy stuff, you know, and Hold On To Your Hat is a pretty kind of old school blues. You know, it's kind of a hard blues, yes. you know, an amped up blues because they had three um, B-sides, which I, of course, was not aware of back in the day. But they had the three B-sides to Mixed Emotions, Rock and a Hard Place and Terrifying, which were Fancy Man Blues, Cook Cook Blues and Wish I'd Never Met You. And they, they you can tell they all came out of like blues jams that the boys were doing, just like, you know, let's come in here and we'll play and we'll, you know, we'll jam out, we'll do some blue stuff and Keith will start eventually putting some chords together on something and then eventually if you put a little, put a, little I mean, a lot of them are, are instrumentals, but you know, maybe you throw a, throw a lyric on them or something like that. So you can see this is where they're getting their stuff from. It's, it's kind of, someone might have a nice almost hear you sigh kind of thing in, in their, in the bucket, but what they really 
kind of our best at is let's get in a room and let's jam on some old blues. That's what we are as an R and B band and see what comes out of it. And and this is what I this is what I never liked about the American record industry slash record business or stores or whatever. You were not gonna find this stuff. You were not gonna find the singles in American record stores. No for these things. So you were never going to hear Fancy Man Blues, Cook Cook Blues, I Wish I Met You, unless you could get your hands on some bootleg or something out there. So yeah, I, I mean, it's cool stuff that you, I'm, I'm glad they did it because it's cool to see other stuff, but I really wish this stuff had been a little more accessible in the 80s. Now you can hear anything you want on the internet or buy it from Amazon or anything else, but yeah, it's, it's cool that it wasn't just another song off the record mm-hmm. for the B-side. The Stones have been good at that for a long time as well i mean you know they yeah. they'll write 20 25 songs and then pair pair it down to you know usually 10 for a record that they make in the 70s or the early 80s you know there's there's 12 here and obviously once you get to like a bridges to babylon you can have more because at that point the lp is it's not on the way out it's it's gone i think basically at that point <laughs> you couldn't get lps and even cassettes were becoming much more rare but you know people's main form of consumption is the cd um, and you've got 70 plus minutes on there so you can put more on um and this one was it's more than 50 right it's it's like 53 54 minutes something like that 12 12 track and then hearts for sale that was another one i feel like i heard it on the radio or they they put it on mtv or something like that but but it was it It, was familiar yeah it was definitely like it's not my favorite song but the riff at the beginning of that is cool that at the beginning, like it's it it doesn't really like it's the rest of the song is okay, but that's a really cool intro riff, and it, I mean the song holds up all right. It's a nice album cut mm-hmm. on here. But yeah, again, I believe I did hear it. I think didn't listen to top forty radio. You could pretty much do whatever you wanted to. So yeah, I think the guys were just you know what else is on this record I can play. Yeah, and then blinded by love, it's a it's a nice song. I, I guess it makes time to do a little bit of a sweet song, right? <laughs> now. I was listening to this song and I was thinking to myself in 1989 nobody was talking to me about production or song selection so you know whatever I kind of think they should have slowed this down and made it a Keith song Mm. in my opinion I I was just thinking about that in my mind when I was listening to it I wonder what that would have been like so I don't know well and uh, of course Keith does get two songs on here uh, which we're getting to nice uh, yeah, it is nice. And it's in the 70s, he would get basically one a record. And then in the 80s, it started to more often become two, which I liked. And some of, even though like on Undercover and Dirty Work aren't necessarily the best Stones albums, there are a couple of really good Keith songs on there, like Wanna Hold You is on uh, Undercover. So, But you might be right, you know, and sometimes Keith will keep songs. Say, Mick, you can't have this one. This one's for me. Generally, Mick is the one who wants to speed it up. Come on, Keith. It's got to be faster. Like, to Keith, everything's a ballad, a sweet song. And like Mick's like, no, no, come on. We got to, you know, I got to get dancing so the chicks come check me out, right? Then, okay, so if you had the tape, that's the end of side one, but the CD kind of rolls on. And then side two, first song side two is rocking a hard place another big hit for them it was all over the mtv and the radio i think this could have been bigger i th- i think this got more airplay i mean again this was not let's see this but this was the second single mm-hmm. off so and that didn't come out till november okay i remember this thinking to myself i like this song better than mixed emotions mm-hmm. it was it was a little harder it was a little nastier and it was the thing that I always loved about this is Ronnie Wood's solo 
on mm, this. Yeah. It's not fast. It's not super intricate. But for this song, it's perfect. Yeah, that's the thing about Ronnie. I always, I tend to underrate him because I'm such a Keith fan. Yeah. And I thought Mick Taylor was kind of a wonderkin. Like, that guy can do stuff that not everyone could do with that slide, man. That guy's awesome. Yeah. So it's tough to, to kind of fill in between those two. But Ronnie plays his role better than anyone else who's ever, like, joined a band that they didn't found or weren't there from the beginning. He has come in. He plays slide well when he needs to. He plays kind of just the right notes. And when you think he's missing it, he comes up with something really good. And, of course, he and Keith are intertwined in some kind of mystical way that I don't think they even understand. They just they just go with it. Yeah, it, and it's, it works. A, it's a real, yeah. It, it's how do you, it, to your point, how do you play guitar alongside Keith Richards? Huh. Well, you're not going to out-muscle him in the riff department. That's not going to happen. So, yeah, you got to pick your shots. And I know that... Uh, Slash has described his relationship with Izzy Stradlin in, in the same way. Like, you know, Slash is the star, he does his thing, but Izzy just drops stuff. Whoop, oh, that's perfect. Whoop, oh, that's perfect again. I think the same with Ronnie Wood. He knows what he's supposed to do in the band, and he does it in a fantastic way. He's not going to outshine Keith. He's not going to outmuscle him, but he is going to, he's going to shine in his own way. That's right. And I think he did, he really does on this song. That's a good call, Jackson. I, I'm with you there. Yeah. Good, good for you. Good for Ronnie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now you get the Keith's can't be seen, which is kind of the more upbeat or rocking one, but still perfect for his voice register. Love it. Yeah. It's, it's good. Unfortunately for Keith, he had put out one of my one of the, my favorite records of all time, Talk Is Cheap. Mm. I just love that. And this was not a Talk Is Cheap song. I mean, it's not bad. It's nice to hear Keith. I'll listen to anything that he puts on these records. But I just think that it was kind of like a, meh, meh. He could have done better. Interesting. All right. Well, because I, I, I don't like it as much as the other song. But the other song is a, a sweet Keith ballad, uh, yeah. which is kind of what he does. And I was thinking Slipping Away, which which wraps up the album. Right. Could, could it fit on Main Effect? which was Keith's next solo record, the one that came out when we lived together and that we wore out. Correct. Yeah, it was. it's a little more upbeat, more upbeat than Talk is Cheap. But I think Talk is Cheap came out of a very bitter part in his life where he was he was not really upset. He, he wanted to make it on his own, mm-hmm. and he was not super in love with Mick Jagger at that point in time. So uh, this could have been a turning page for him, too, where he's like, you know what, okay, let's, let's bury the hatch a little bit, as they say in mixed emotions, and let's get back to it. So yeah, it, and it always is, it's a nice change of pace to hear Keith sing, because... It, it's I like that on any record. You've got another person who can who can put in lead vocals, and he does not sound anything like Mick. Right. And the songs aren't his. Keith's songs are not Mick Jagger songs. They're totally different, which is cool. That's right. And, and even if Mick can come out and sing a little backup at some point, like sometimes he might on Happy or something like that. Yeah. Still, yeah. Give Keith the, the chance, and I, I love the way he sings. It's it, you're right. It's different, but I think it's cooler than hell. Like the fact that he he is who he is, Keith Richards, and so he has earned the right to sing his songs the way he wants you'd think it'd be rougher than it was but it's it's actually even something like tna which is little tna which is you know not a song for children right it's it's more adult themed it's got a little nastiness in there to it but even when he sings yeah his his voice is softer than mix mix kind of got that hard blues rock voice he's it's it's a little it's a little softer edged yeah and it's softer edge, but then he put he could put the gravel in there too, which is cool. All right, so moving on side two here, almost here you sigh. Like you said, it was written 
co-written by Steve Jordan, who played drums on all the Keith Richards and Expensive Winos records, including Cross-Eyed Heart. He wrote the, yeah, and he wrote the whole thing. He wrote the whole uh, Talk is Cheap with Keith Richards, too, I believe. Which is um, awesome. Yeah. This this was this was another big MTV hit. Almost Cheer You Sigh was in January of 1990. Mm. So, yeah, again, back on MTV again. So you figure that they, they hit August, uh, November. Here we are in January of 1990 again. Uh, another big big hit for them on MTV so just kept the kept the train rolling on this deal yeah and they did they did a huge steel wheels tour and then when they went to Europe they called it the Urban Jungle Tour. Correct. And, yeah. And they played Japan and Australia. And they milked it because some people were like, well, this could be the last one. You know, this could be the last Correct. time. Right? Uh, yeah. And so they, they went out and did it. And they did it great. And they realized, hey, we could do this again in four or five years, which, of course, they did. Which will hopefully be another episode because we could go through a whole deal on the next record and the tour, which and, we got to see tour. in beautiful Tampa, Florida. Yes, we got to see it together at Big Sombrero. <laughs> Hey out there, rock fans. Do you want to hear us talk about Voodoo Lounge and our experience seeing it live? Do you want to hear about another Stones album? Do you want to hear about another band or album completely? Let us know. Follow us on Twitter and send us a message at Ugly underscore Werewolf. Check out all our past episodes at UglyAmericanWerewolf.Libsyn.com. Now back to the show. Then they get into Continental Drift, which is very different for the Stones, right? Had some different artists on there playing with them. Not your typical Stone song at all. And actually, they kind of opened the show with it in that they it was music they kind of played in the background when they would flash the lights and let everybody know, okay, now here it comes, you know. Everybody yeah. get excited. We're all going to do it. Kind of like Iron Maiden will play Dr. Doctor by UFO. You know, they'll play a bunch of music leading up. When you hear Dr. Doctor, you know that Iron Maiden's coming on next. Right. So it's... It's, time to pay attention it's time to pay attention yeah so they're playing parts of Continental Drift with the flashing lights to let everybody know and then you hear the start me up opening chords and, and you know that it's on but so they did kind of utilize it I guess on tour but they didn't play it because it's, that's an odd song for the Stones if you listen to that if you don't until you hear the Mick Jagger vocals you would never think that was a Stones song it's got a really cool Middle Eastern feel to it mm-hmm. I don't know how you would do it live there's way too much going on there um, and that would be kind of a, in a Stones show Show that would be kind of like a whoa, you know bring it down i think it's a cool change of pace I, I i like this song a lot better than i did back in the day i think this was probably one of the ones that i skipped over because it wasn't wasn't a big you know hard rock and stone song but mm-hmm. I, I like it i like the fact when, i like when bands they take a little bit of a chance they go you know i mean the stones can do whatever they want but right. it was it's a cool change of pace yeah i, I agree i mean it, it's cool again if your main mode of selling records is on LP and cassette, this is probably one you leave off, right? Because you're not going to have more than 50 minutes on an LP um, and and usually not on a cassette. You can probably take it off, but you know, it's a CD. You could put more on there. At this point, you're still selling a lot of LPs and tapes for sure. But you know, CDs are a thing now, and you can you can do this. And and obviously, they sold them on LP back in the day. So that they're starting to stretch it out. And, and maybe if you didn't have you know the other format to kind of push them, it it wouldn't have been on there. Who knows? I, by yeah, by '89, I did have a CD player. But yeah, you're right. I mean, CDs were like fifteen dollars, which in today's money is like forty bucks. And you know, for yeah, for a teenager to have 40 bucks to spend on a record, that's, that's, that's a lot of money. Yeah, like you said, even if you had it in your hand, you know, looking at the, staring at it in the record store, like, oh, God, that is a big investment when the tape was like seven or something mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, it can pretty much sound the same. And like you said, you had a CD player, but 
did a whole lot of other people. So like, you couldn't be like, Oh, let me take this over to it. Well, they can't play it anyway. So yeah, I'm going to go with the tape. That's, that's fits my lifestyle right now. Right. Right. Yeah. And you, you know, <laughs> didn't have a CD. I didn't have a CD player in my car until after graduate school, man. You know, I, I and, and most people had them by that point, you know? So yeah, I mean, tapes made sense for a long time, Correct. but yeah. So that's why, you know, I was buying the Beatles as my first CDs and, you know, buying Led Zeppelin and, and stuff that I knew that if I had right. it for 30 35, 40 years, which some of them I have had now, it, it wouldn't be like, oh, God, why the hell did I buy that? Right. Uh, or it's like, God, I can't believe I was a fan of that back in the day. Like, <laughs> if you bought a CD, it had to be somebody classic, whereas now, you know, I can get a great classic album for like five bucks and have Amazon bring it right to my door. You know, so it's not that big a deal anymore. It's like, you know, okay, I wouldn't buy one Blue Oyster Cult record back in 89, but now I'll just buy them all because it's like 60 bucks for, you know, 20 records or something like that. Right. You know? And if you've got a couple tracks that you're like, you know, you're not too, you're not too upset about that. Yeah, you're right. It's the beginning of the CD days where this has to be a home run. Every track has to be fantastic or I'm not jumping in on this thing. And then, yeah, Sorry, people. after you pay that, you're going to sit and listen to it. You're not going to just say, oh, right. let that get rusty on the shelf. It's dust on it no you're gonna listen to that you're gonna absorb it that's that's where your 40 bucks just went uh you know that's this, this right month's here. 40 bucks right right and then break the spell is well it's the second to last slipping away the keith song is last break the spell is a short rock and blues tune another one that, that seemed to probably come out of the, the blues sessions but i'd say if you're talking about cook cook blues and the, the fancy man blues and the wish i'd never met you and then this one Break the Spell. This is the best of those four. They're all kind of a little bit similar. They, they kind of seem to come out of blues jams for me, but this is easily the best one. So two things on this one. Number one, Bill Wyman laying it down. Mm-hmm. Great bass group. And Mick Jagger does not get enough credit as a harmonica player. He is a really good blues harmonica player. You never think about that until he breaks it out and you're like, Oh, hey, yeah, wait a minute. He is really good at that. So, yeah, this is a cool – I think you're right. It is the best out of any of those for this deal. But, yeah, just a real cool – again, another change of pace. Back to the beginning. That's what little Keith Richards mm-hmm. – or I guess Richard back then. <laughs> and Mick Jagger, that's what they listened to when they were little kids. That's who they wanted to be. They wanted to be a blues man. And so it's cool to kind of go back to – I mean they could probably sight unseen – make this stuff up they've been doing it for so long oh let's blues jam okay but but, but, yeah and and so it's cool to hear that on this record well see another thing that i think happened in the 80s was they, they try to do stuff that they were trying to follow some trends maybe that weren't good for them they were maybe trying to reinvent themselves as a different kind of band and then when it came to this album it's like why don't we reinvent ourselves as ourselves you know, why don't we just go out and be a blues band? That's what we are. And you're right about Mick on the harmonica. There was a famous thing from Keith where they were doing the, I think it was the next session, the Voodoo Lounge sessions. And, you know, Mick's on the guitar trying to play something and figure out a song that way. And Keith's sitting on the piano trying to figure out the song that way. And Mick's like, Keith, get, get off the piano and pick up the guitar, you know, and write a song the way we're going to write a song. And so Keith's like, well, you put down that guitar and pick up the harp, man, because you're you're pretty good at that. And Love yeah. is Strong, the first big song off of Voodoo Lounge, has pretty nasty little, uh, you know, harmonica yeah. in it from Mr. Jagger. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's one of those things where you kind of forget until he does it, and then you say, hey, wait a minute, yeah. He is he, good. Yeah, he is really good at that. And, and should do it more. You know, he, he'll introduce the band uh, when they play live and, and run through everybody. And then generally Ronnie 
will come grab the microphone from him to introduce him to the crowd. And I remember once, I don't know if it was when we saw him or not, said, ladies and gentlemen, the, the very expensive gynecologist, Mr. Mick Jagger. But I think it was when I saw him in Miami, he said, ladies and gentlemen, not a bad mouth organist, Mr. Mick Jagger. <laughs> and Mick even had to say thank you, Ronnie, for that one, you know, because it's the truth. He's, he's not bad. <laughs> but the, the bottom line is this gave them the license to tour. We got to see them on this tour and it was life-changing for both of us it was i mean it was the first really big stadium show if you could list an all-time band and we'd list led zeppelin that would never happen and we'd probably list the beatles that would never happen and say you know it would be the who probably and the rolling stones and pink floyd would be like who would you want to see And the, the stones are the ones that got there first and they did it the best and it enabled them to, to, to continue to do it because that was the first of six times that I've seen the Stones and could have seen them more. It's it's not like I couldn't... I, I've sat out the last few tours just because I figured, look, I've, I've seen the Stones, right? Six times is a lot. Seen them in six different spots. A lot of money on those tickets, by the way, <laughs> over the years. That's the tough part, yeah. yeah. You say, oh yeah, let's go, let's go. So, um, so it's been 18 years, I think. You've seen them six times. Have they ever disappointed you? Have you ever walked away from a Rolling Stones show like, Eh, they were kind of phoning that in. No, of course not. You know, I mean, and yeah. the way they do it, you know, I was lucky because in, I think it was 2003-ish, 2003, around the 40th anniversary, kind of around the Licks time, the Stones did a tour that was different. They did, they in some of the bigger cities like Chicago, New York, L.A., and places like that, they would do three shows. They would do a theater show, say like at the, the Wiltern in L.A., or, or maybe they play, oh, the Roseland Ballroom. They played the Roseland Ballroom. They played the Roseland Ballroom, and then I think they did MSG, and then I think they did Giant Stadium. Okay, that place is tiny. I saw the cult there in 1999. <laughs> that is a tiny place. That would have been a great place to see the Stones play, because that's, I mean, it's old and dumpy, but it's, it's acoustically, it's fantastic. And that's what the Aragon in Chicago was. And I just figured, hey, look, I've seen the stadium tour, and if I want to see that again, i got a feeling I'll, I'll get another chance. If I'm only going to see one show on the tour, I want to go to the small and they they changed up the the songs a little bit. They would do a few more deeper tracks at the ballroom or the the theater shows than they would on the because you know you figure the stadium shows the arena shows thousands and thousands of people are there. You know the, 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 there's going to be casual fans there. So right. they they actually didn't play Satisfaction at the Aragon no, and and those kinds of things. Yeah, well, see for me it's like good. You know, give me something else. Correct. You know, give me rip this joint. Give right. me all down the line. Give me something like that. And it was. It was a it was a blast to kind of see him in that place, you know. And so they did stuff like "Live with Me," "Hand of Fate," <laughs> I know, "Torn and Frayed." They did "Worried About You" for the first time since '77. They did some fun stuff like "Everybody Needs Somebody to Love," like a Blues Brothers song. Yeah, which is. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> you know, Keith did "Slipping Away," which is great. They did "It's Only Rock and Roll." And who sauntered onto stage to kind of do a little backup, but Mr. Bono himself. Oh, interesting. Which was pretty neat, you know. Um, and then what they did, I Just Want to Make Love to You, which is a song they've been doing years. You know, old blues song from Willie Dixon. Dr. John, who opened for him that night, he came out and jammed with them on that. And, you know, and they did Rip This Joint and Can't You Hear Me Knocking and finish with Tumbling Dice, you know. I'm like, 
man. That's mm. that's a cool stone show. That was a lot of fun and different, right, from just the huge stadium where you, you have to see Satisfaction. You got to hear Brown Sugar and all that stuff. But yeah, I think was, that's probably cool for them, too, because, with, yeah, when they play the big stadium shows, they have to. I mean, you have to play Satisfaction or you're going to get you're going to get ripped apart. But, yeah, when you do a show like that, you can say, OK, hey, what else you want to hear? You know, you, you get everybody together. You say, what, what have we played a long time? That's cool. Oh, we can play, you know, again, Tumbling Dice or Live With Me. I love that song. It's fantastic. But yeah, you play that in a big stadium and it's like, what's right. this? And that's why I thought Bridges yeah. to Babylon was such a cool tour because they came out and did Satisfaction first. Like, all right, this is what you want. Here, take it. Let's go. Instead of like the last <laughs> song, let's do it first, you know, and got it out there, you know. Uh, I'm like, yeah, good for you guys, you know. But then they had this thing because the internet in 97 was a bigger part of American life at that point. AOL was probably still the dominant player at that point. And they had a thing where you'd go on and vote in each city. You could vote for the deep track, you know, that you wanted them to play because they have a set list and they do mix it up a little bit. They want to say, you know, city to city, which song do you want? Give Me Shelter was originally one of the songs. And because in like every city, it was like winning every night. They said, okay, we get it. We'll change the set list. Gimme Shelter's <laughs> in there now. We'll play that every night, which I was psyched about, of course. And then, you know, you could get a different kind of deep track. And in Miami, they played She's a Rainbow, which I think is a an underrated, very overlooked Stone song. Wasn't on Hot Rocks, was on more Hot Rocks. So I didn't know it as well growing up. Yeah, and that, that one gets, I think that one does get enough love because it's off uh, Satanic Majesty's Request. That was, I think, people are like, oh, now you're just being silly. But that is a good, that's a good track. <laughs> Well, I hope you all enjoyed us reminiscing about the Rolling Stones' steel wheels, being able to see them on that tour, and the love affair that it really sparked with not only the Rolling Stones, but going to great big rock and roll shows. It wasn't our first concert, but it was the first really huge stadium concert to kind of show the power and majesty of rock and roll. And when you mix that with one of the all-time greatest rock and roll bands, wow, it was a special experience, a special tour. And a special album, a great comeback album, and a much underrated album in the Stones canon. Now next week, we're also going to be talking about a classic hard rock band, this time an American band, KISS. And we're going to talk about not their groundbreaking and record-breaking Alive album, but the follow-up, Kiss Alive 2, which featured songs from their three records that followed Alive, Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, and Love Gun. It really set the bar high for Kiss. And it's one that we wore out during our time together. So that wraps up this week's show, guys. Hey, did we get something wrong? Did we get something right? Did we miss the point? Do you want to hear about another album or band? you got to let us know. Tweet us at Ugly underscore Werewolf. And check out all our past episodes at UglyAmericanWerewolf.Libsyn.com. Until next time, all around the world, everyone be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 